been a while since we were here in Isaiah's. land there were 12 tribes of Israel Uh, they each had identity although they were one nation and uh, subsequently after Solomon after um, Solomon uh, they split and 10 tribes separated themselves in the north two tribes in the south and from there on it was downhill all the way Um, at the time Isaiah comes onto the scene uh, some years have passed and the end is near He lives through the period that the northern ten tribes are assimilated by Assyria. He lives to see that and he prophesies concerning the two tribes in the south. He prophesies that they too uh, will be taken captive not by Assyria but by Babylon that will rise up after Assyria. Uh, He sees that happening and prophesies concerning it. He prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed, that they will be taken into exile And then he prophesies that some 150 years hence, um, a man will be born. He names the man Cyrus. Cyrus, sorry, where Cyrus come from? Cyrus. And uh, he prophesies that this man will arise from the east. He will come. He will overthrow the Babylonians, and he will become the next empire, or raise the next empire, and that he will release the Jews, and the Jews will be able to return back to Jerusalem. He sees all those things, prophesies them, and we have the history on. You only got to go to the British Museum in London and you can see the proof of the fulfilment of those prophecies. But, far more importantly for us, he also prophesied what was going to happen not 150 years forwards, but some 750 years forwards, uh, three quarters of a millennia forward, when the Lord Jesus Christ will walk this earth and die on a cross to save sinners. Um, as we've looked at it so far, we've seen two of the so-called servant songs that are there in the book of Isaiah. Um, they're known as the servant songs. They're simply sections of his prophecies that, in which Jesus speaks, in which um, Christ steps forward and, and comes onto the platform. And in this morning's chapter 50, we come to the third of those servant songs. So with all of that said, let's look at this 50th chapter. Our sin... His obedience. I want us to start here, as so often, the people's sin. Look at the first three verses. We are proud people, are we not? It's endemic in us. Every human being is proud by nature. We hate being recognised as doing things wrong, do we not? I suggest to you, we've only got to look at children to see it. If you leave a little group of children in a room and you go out to do something and there's an almighty crash and you realise something's got broken and you go into the room, what are you immediately confronted with? All these little children saying, wasn't me, you know, it it was him or it it did it itself or something happened. No one will stand up and say, it was my fault, I was in the wrong. And, And it starts as a young child and it carries on with us all our life, doesn't it? into the workplace, into the home, anywhere and everywhere, we do not want to say, I was wrong. And even when you rise to the giddying heights of um, an MP representing our country in the Houses of Parliament, making laws and changing laws, when did you last ever hear an MP stand up and say, I've got something I want to say, I was completely wrong? Never happens. We are incredibly proud people. 
it's about to go all wrong for Israel. Babylon is about to sweep in and take them into exile and Isaiah knows the hearts of the people and as God gives in this prophecy it concerns first of all the way these people are going to respond to what happens. In their pride they're immediately going to want to blame somebody else for the situation they find themselves in. Well they could blame the Babylonians they after all the ones who are coming in to take them into captivity but they believe in a sovereign God. They believe in a God who is over the nations, a God who is in control. And therefore, if they're going to blame somebody for what they see as it all going wrong in their lives, they're going to blame God. They're going to turn around and say, where's the God who's supposed to be for us? Where's the God who's supposed to deliver us? Where's the God who's supposed to protect us? When we needed him, he let us down. And Isaiah foresees this. And so as this chapter opens, he speaks for God. Here is what God says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? I want you to see first of all that God knows how they're thinking. He's looking forward and he's saying, when this happens, I can tell you exactly how you're going to respond to it. They don't yet know how they're going to respond. But God does. And God knows exactly how we think. My friends, that is a frightening thought, isn't it? Psalm 139, the psalmist looks at, you know, he says, where can I go to escape from your presence? He says, if I go to the far side of the ocean, you're there. If I go into the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go to the highest mountain, we would say out to the moon or the planets, you're there. I can't escape you. And he says, you know every one of my thoughts before one of them's in my head. God knows us completely. I guess if you'd ask them when it happens, are you blaming God for this? I'm pretty certain that most of them, if not all of them, would have said, of course not. I don't blame God. But in their hearts, they were. And I guess it can be the same with us very often. When something goes wrong in our lives, when things don't go the way we want them to go or expect them to go or have been planning them to go or even praying for them to go, while we might not openly admit it and if someone says to us, are you blaming God for this at all? And we say, absolutely not. The reality is, if we're completely honest, we are starting to. We're starting to doubt him. We're starting to question. Why why is this happening, God? I, I, I... are you not concerned about me anymore? Are you not for me anymore? Why is it that in my workplace I'm having to put up with all of this all of a sudden? Why is it in my relationships this is going wrong and that's going wrong? Why is it my health is suddenly failing me? God, what are you doing? God knows how we're thinking. The second thing we discover here is the fault is not God's, but ours or theirs in the text this is how God says he says let me put to you two of the scenarios possible scenarios that you're contemplating here he says here's the first one you're saying I've finished with you you're saying that I've just sent you away that I've divorced you I haven't he said I did the tribes in the north at least according to Jeremiah I did Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 we read this she saw that for all her adulteries of that faithless one Israel I had sent her away with a decree of divorce says God 
Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. God says, okay, it's true that I did divorce the tribes in the north. I sent them away. But he says, I've not divorced you. Where's this certificate of divorce that you're claiming that I've, I've cut you off and divorced you? I haven't done anything of the sort. And he says, okay, well, what about this scenario? You're saying amongst yourselves that, well, what it is, is God's in debt to somebody. And God's, God's paid off his debt by selling us into slavery to the Babylonians, like some king might do. You know, my, my coffers are running low. Oh, I've got some slaves I can sell off and make some money from them. God says, I've never done anything like that to you. No, says God, I will tell you exactly what the reason is. Verse 1, behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, this is all about your personal sin. He says, Israel, for goodness sake, stop looking out there to find reasons and start looking in here. It's, it's, it's not about external things, it's about your internal state. You have disobeyed me over and over and over again. Now, God is fully able to save you. Do you see this? Verses 2 to 3. Look how he speaks. God says, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? In other words, time and time again I've come to you and I've told you what is wrong and I've called on you to repent and put it right and no one has responded as they should. Why? He says. What's your excuse? And of course they haven't got one. They just don't want to obey God. Oh, they want to obey him when things are going well. They want to obey him when uh, life's easy, sun's shining. Then when it gets hard, they go and turn to false gods. Or, 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 they, or they mix worship of him with something else. Friend, is it like that with anyone here this morning? That you sort of recognise God and God is there but you won't worship him in the way that he's required of you to worship him. You sort of want him, but you want other things as well, other ways to worship him, other gods in your life, other things. And although you're sort of trying to hold God there, you won't fall down and worship him through the Lord Jesus Christ as he requires of you. And then when anything goes wrong, you turn around and blame him. And say, God, God this, is, this is you. This is why I don't worship you with all my heart, mind and soul. Look what you're like. And God says, this isn't about what I'm like. This is about what you're like. The reason these things are going wrong is because of you. Now in contrast to that, see the servant's obedience. And this is where we turn to the servant's song. This is now Christ coming on the scene. Verses 1 to 3 show us how we respond to God. This shows us how Christ responded. See, first of all, he speaks as God. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me, this is Christ speaking, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. As many people have come on the scene who have been sent from God to speak to man. The Old Testament, we've got a catalogue of such men. Isaiah himself, of course, amongst them. God sent him to speak on God's behalf to men, but no one spoke on God's behalf as God. 
to men except the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said, Matthew 7, verse 28. Oh, sorry, it says about Jesus. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching as one who said, I say this, whereas their scribes said, someone else says this. Matthew 5, 27 onwards. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says to them, you have heard that it said, in other words, the Old Testament rightly says, blah, blah, blah. But I say to you, in other words, I speak with the same authority as the Old Testament speaks. I speak as God. John 14.10, Jesus speaking. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I am speaking as God from God. My friend, we need to listen to Jesus. Every word that he says is God speaking. When he says, I am the way, and the, lo- the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he says that as God. Whatever he says, he says as God. Do you see why he must be listened to? He speaks as God. He obeyed the Father. Look at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. We reject God. We rebel against God. God says go this way and we choose to go that way. Jesus Christ never. He obeyed. Listen to what he said in John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What an incredible mission the Father sent him on. To save men and women like you and me. Men and women who fall into that first three verses, those who reject God, won't obey God and yet blame God. And Jesus Christ came as the one who is God and perfectly obeyed God. Can you imagine what it must have been like in heaven? The Bible doesn't tell us this, I'm just asking the question. Can you imagine what it must have been like when God the Father laid out before the angels what Jesus was coming to earth to do and how he was going to do it? Can you imagine it? That that. God, the one on the throne, the one you fall down in adoration to worship, is going to go down onto that planet and be abused by the beings he's created. He's going to be ridiculed, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be blasphemed, he's going to be nailed to a cross, and while he's there, I'm going to pour out on him my anger, my wrath against every sinful thought, word or deed that anyone who ever trusts in him has committed. And he will bear it all before he dies. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And yet, says Jesus, I chose to 
to obey that will. From the moment I was born to the moment I died, I never once flinched from doing what the Father had called me to do. And that includes he accepted the abuse of men, thirdly. He accepted the abuse of men. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now the fourth and last servant song is going to speak a lot more about this, isn't it? The famous one in Isaiah 53. But even here, it's touching on it, when Christ is there and he's arrested and he's abused and ridiculed and mocked and they put a, a... a robe on him and they force this crown of thorns down onto his head and they spit at him and then they nail him to a tree. What is his response? He cries out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, verse 33, bears record of what happened. This is how it reads, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I've never seen a crucifixion, thank the Lord. Can you begin to imagine what that must have been like? And when anybody else would have been shouting out blasphemy, foul language, curses he turns around and says Father would you forgive them please for this would you forgive them for the fact that they're crucifying the Christ would you forgive them for the fact that they've got no conception as to who I am but think I'm a criminal and he goes to it for people like you and I How does he do that? Well, look, the answer is there in verse 7. His trust is in the Father. The one who we don't trust when things get hard, he continues to trust even on the cross. Verse 7, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He says, I can face the cross because my trust is in the God who is over the crucifixion. And the reality is we start to doubt God and question God when it's a tiny little thing starts to happen in our lives. But not Jesus. No, he can go to the cross trusting in the Father. And he can cry out in the end to the Father and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And let his life go, knowing that the Father will take it and bring him into his glory. And the Father will vindicate him, verses 8 to 9. Now, Jesus walked this planet, what, 2,000 years ago? And then, while he was walking this planet, men rejected him. While he was walking this planet, men despised him. While he was walking this planet, men said he's doing it by the power of the devil. And ever since, men have continued to do the same thing, haven't they? Paul, very soon afterwards, this man is a blasphemer and I want to destroy the church that's being formed in his name until the Lord stops him and reveals himself to him. 
down through the centuries, men and women in every generation have sought to deny who Jesus Christ was, have sought to use his name as a blasphemy, have sought to do anything and everything except fall down on their knees and worship him, and it's happening in our generation exactly the same. I guarantee you, if you're in secular work, there are people in your office or your workplace who blaspheme the name of Christ. There are men and women who do not worship him, who will not recognise him, who will say he is not God and I will not bow the knee to him. But do you see what these verses say? He will be vindicated. A day is coming, a day is set and it cannot be moved when the Lord Jesus Christ will return in all glory according to scripture. And the heavens will part and he will be seen by everybody on the face of this planet And what does it tell us will happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And where will all these people be who've denied he's God? I'll tell you where they'll be because the Bible tells me where they'll be. They'll be screaming on the mountains to fall on them and bury them. Because that will be when the reality kicks home in their minds and in their hearts that I got it wrong. And they will all be raised, it doesn't matter how they die, when they die, they will all be raised and each and every one, including us, will stand before God in judgment. And on that day, the reality of verses 1 to 3 will be laid bare. You didn't respond to me when I called you. When I showed you through my word how I wanted you to live, you didn't live like it. You rebelled me, you went against me and then you just blame me when things go wrong in your life. Well, it's nothing to do with me, it's about your sin. What excuse have you got? And there will not be an excuse uttered. There will be nobody who stands before Almighty God and says, God, I can justify my rejection of you. But... Christ Jesus died in order that on that day our sin might be not counted against us. Which brings us to these last few verses. There is a stark choice here. Look at verses 10 and 11. The way Isaiah presents it here, the way God presents it here is that we've got two choices. We're going to follow a light, these two verses are saying. Here's here's the first light we can choose to follow. It's the light that we light ourselves. It's there in verse 11. Uh, It reads like this. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. In other words, if you think you can make yourself good enough to get to heaven, that's your fire. You light it. If you think somehow on that day you can stand before Almighty God and God will say, yep, you're good enough, I'll let you into heaven, that's your fire. You light your fire and you, you live your life by the light that that fire gives you. And there are millions of people in the world today doing exactly that, aren't there? They sort of believe that somehow or another, on that day, if there is a God, if there is a judgment, and they might or might not believe that, but that if there is, God is somehow going to look at them and say, well, okay, you've got a few things wrong, but on balance, you know, you've got more right than wrong, so I'll let you into heaven. You might not be perfect, but who's perfect? You know, I'll have you. And yet, what does this verse say? What the reality will be? Verse 11. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip themselves, themselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, 
this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. In other words, at the end, that light will foul you. And you'll be cast into everlasting hell. There is no one good enough. No, not one, says scripture. There are none righteous. You know, we can light our little lights and we can be impressed by them. We can say, wow, I'm living quite a good life here. I'm certainly a lot better than that person and I'm better than that person. I'm better than I was. I'm getting better every year. And then you suddenly put that against God's perfection and you see that it's filthy. We used to have a dog. I love that dog. Long since dead now. But he was, uh, he was a beagle. Brown, black and white. And against that black, that white looked so white, I tell you. He, looked, he was a lovely dog and he used to love taking photos of that dog until it snowed. And then when you took him out in the snow, suddenly his white was not against the black of him, but the white was against the snow. And I tell you, he just looked like we've got to give him a bath today. He is so dirty. That's our lives. All the time I just compare it with what my life's been like or what other people's lives are like, I can think, that's a pretty nice, clean, white life. Until it's brought next to God. And that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. He's not going to set me up there with six other people and say, well, let me pick the best of the six. He's going to say, let me put you up against my standards. And suddenly I'll see myself for how I am. And I'll be without hope. He says, that's one choice of light. But he says, but there is another one. It's there in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In other words, if instead you can see that your light is no light at all, it just isn't going to work. Choose instead to put your trust and hope in the Lord. Now my friends, that would be a pretty poor choice if it didn't work, wouldn't it? I mean, if, if that light only works for this lifetime, that would be a pretty poor choice. I mean, let's be honest. Being a Christian is not the easiest life to live, is it? I, I mean, we try to live by higher standards than the world. We are sitting here on a Sunday morning instead of out playing football or whatever else you could be doing on a Sunday morning. We, we spend time every day in prayer and reading our Bibles. There's, there's all sorts of things that we could turn around and say, well, do you know... I'm doing all of that. I hope at the end of the day this is worth something. I mean, Paul puts it like this in the New Testament. He says, if only for this lifetime we have hope, we're to be pitied above all men. He says, come on, let's be honest. If Christianity only works for this lifetime, he says, this is the worst possible life. But it doesn't just work for this lifetime. That's his point here. It's the other lights that will fail on that day, not the light who is Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. My friends, do you know Jesus? Do you know this servant who's going to come on the scene to Isaiah 750 years future to us 2,000 years past? But this servant who came, and unlike us, perfectly obeyed the Father in everything. Trusted in the Father in everything. 
was here as God and as man and went to a cross to die in order that we who are disobedient might be considered obedient us who are unrighteous might be seen as righteous because this is the deal that God offers us that if we will recognise that we are in those first three verses if we will recognise that we are rebellious people before God and we can't do anything about it and if we try to walk by our own light we're just going to end up in torment and so instead we'll reject ourselves and turn instead to him and fall on our knees and worship Christ if we will say Father not for my sake but for Christ's sake would you forgive me not because I'm good because I know I'm not but because he was perfect not because I'm righteous but because he was righteous not because I've dealt with sin but because he dealt with sin Father will you for his sake please forgive me I give up fighting with you Father I want Christ to run my life from here on I want him to be my Lord and my Saviour and my King if you would do that Jesus says then you will have the light of life the light that will sustain you and lead you aright through this lifetime and the light that will keep you and guard you through death through judgement and into the new heavens and new earth where we will spend eternity living by the light who is Christ my friends do you know this Jesus if you don't can I encourage you to do whatever is necessary to know him and be right with God through him if it helps to talk to somebody find someone who you know is a Christian you can trust and just ask them the question tell me about Jesus they're going to delight to tell you they're not going to force you into it I wish you could force people into it I would be the first lady there forcing you can't you know, you've, got to, you've got to choose Christ for yourself you've got to submit yourself to him but you can at least do yourself the favour of finding out about him and then just ask God God would you help me to be honest with myself and God would you help me to see my need of Jesus and then just come and give your life to him we're going to sing as we